All right. Uh, I'm very excited. Um, I have known Scott for a long time, but really kind of from a distance. Uh, I've known his sister, Robin, for 35 years, and she's my beloved friend. And I kind of knew Scott as that brother that lives somewhere else in the United States, right? In this far hinter country called Michigan, which was our arch rivals when we grew up in Wisconsin. So who cares about Michigan? That doesn't matter, right? And uh, But Scott and I uh, really got a chance to connect. And when I heard his story, when I listened to what God had done, I just kind of put a mental footnote in my mind and said, you know, Lord, if the chance ever opened up for him to share that story with our body, I would love to take that shot. And it has rolled out in a beautiful way. He's going to be sharing in the next month. And again, if you have um, friends who are struggling or have gone through significant pain or significant heartbreak and that kind of stuff, this would be a fantastic series uh, to invite them to. So uh, would you invite Scott this morning with a warm Norfie welcome? Let's give him a hand. Scott, come on up. Well, good morning. Full disclosure, uh, this is uh, my first time attending the 8 o'clock service. Uh, I, uh, I probably have never met any of you folks uh, yet before, maybe just a handful of you. But uh, we normally come to the 11 o'clock service. We live over in Edmonds, so uh, it's a little bit of a drive for us and to, to get all of our kids up and ready, and that's the one that works for us. But uh, I just want to let you know, as a, as a former pastor, I have a lot of um, appreciation and respect for you 8 o'clock folks, because I know that uh, it's not always easy to get up and get ready and get, get uh, moving, but, but you come here to this service in order to make room for people uh, at the later services, which is, is uh, the time that's most convenient for most people, and those are the ones that are, that are fuller, and you guys come here you make that sacrifice in order to make room for people at the other services so that more and more people can come and, and come to get to know Jesus Christ. And so I just I really appreciate you guys, even though we've never met before. I'm so glad that you're here today, and I'm glad that we can be here together. Uh, I just want to express my thanks also to Pastor Steve for allowing me to share with you this morning and for the next uh, few weeks, because over the last several years, I've seen God do amazing, incredible, hard, painful things in my life. And I want to share them with you because I think it will be an encouragement for you and your relationship with God and wherever you're at in your relationship with God. I met Tanya my freshman year of college. She was uh, spunky and energetic and zany and unpredictable. Uh, I was smitten rather quickly, and, and for the next three and a half years, we, we, uh, we dated, and we got married then in 1997, just a couple weeks after my graduation. We did the married thing for a year, just to kind of make sure that we had worked out all the kinks, you know, and uh, then we headed to Kentucky so that I could attend seminary. And after three years, I, I graduated with my Master's of Divinity, and she had earned her PhD, which is uh, putting hubby through. We moved up to Michigan, which is where she was originally from, and uh, I served there as a worship pastor at a church for three and a half years. We moved in February 2005 to a church about 45 minutes up the road, and I became the senior pastor there. Our son, Jared, was born that same year in November. We adopted Caleb in June of 2012. 
Then early in October 2012, we discovered that Tanya had cancer. 20 days later, she died. She was 38. Jared and Caleb were six and two at the time. And, and you know, there are some things that happen in life that nothing can prepare you for. And this is one of them. It's hard to describe the kind of pain and darkness that I felt in those days. The Bible talks about how when two people get married, that, that the two become one. And, and you know, that was, that was us. We were one. One heart, one mind, one purpose, one flesh, united. And when she died, I felt like, like because we had been one, I felt like I had just been ripped in half. That half of me was just gone with her. My friends said that I changed a lot after Tanya died in ways that I didn't even realize or recognize at the time. I became a lot more serious. I quit laughing and joking. I was more intense. I lost my ability to have fun or even really to relax. I'd been thrown completely sideways, and and honestly, really, what I was doing was I was just managing barely to keep myself together, to keep my family going. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe there are some of you who are here, and you've been in that place before yourself. Maybe there are some of you who can't relate at all. You've just never had to go through anything like that before. Or maybe some of you are in that place right now. No matter who you are and where you are, I want to share with you the lessons from the pit that God has taught me. Because even if everything is great for you right now, you can guarantee that there are choppy waters ahead because that's the way life is. All of us, every single one of us, we're either in trouble or we're just coming out of trouble or we're getting ready to head into trouble and we don't even know it. So this is for all of us about how to navigate through the dark and difficult times that that come into everybody's life sooner or later. One of the things that I especially appreciate about Pastor Steve is his willingness to to speak the truth. And he didn't ask me to say all this, but I'm going (laughs) to. You know, he talks about things like suffering and hardship. He doesn't sugarcoat it. You know, that's so biblical. The Bible talks about this kind of stuff. And example number one is the life of Jesus himself. So this first lesson from the pit is what I'm calling the Jesus lesson. If you've got your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's fine. It'll be up on the screen. But Hebrews 12, you know, coincidentally, comes right after Hebrews 11, right? Uh, Which some people call the Bible's Faith Hall of Fame. It's a list of all of these important people from the past and all the great things that they did. And... And the writer of Hebrews is making the point through telling their story that that the only way that they were able to do all of these great things is because of their faith in God, particularly faith during the tough times. 
And the author defines faith in a very specific way. He says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and being certain about what we do not see. Being sure of what we hope for and being certain about what we do not see. And because you see, when you truly believe something, then that gets conveyed through actions, right? What you actually believe, not what you say you believe or what you want people to think you believe or even what you wish you could believe, but what you actually believe determines what you do. So all these people in Hebrews chapter 11, they were able to do all of these great things because of their great faith in God. And then after the writer kind of lays all this stuff out in Hebrews chapter 11, he goes on to say that not one of them received what was promised. See, Abel was promised that God would accept him and bless him if he offered a right sacrifice. Abel offered that sacrifice, and then his brother Cain killed him out of jealousy. He certainly didn't live to see any blessing out of that. Noah, after God had him build the ark and rescued him from the flood, he was promised that God would never again destroy the world with a flood. Well, by definition, since the earth is still here, that promise is still being fulfilled but it hasn't been completed yet. Noah never received the fulfillment of that promise. Abraham was promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. And when Abraham died, he had exactly one descendant. Moses was told that the Hebrew people would cross the Jordan River and enter into the land that God had promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit. And when Moses died, they still hadn't made it yet. So verse 39 of Hebrews chapter 11 says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. And we might be inclined to say, well, then that was pretty stupid, wasn't it? A lot of good that faith did them. They never received what was promised to them. But the writer of Hebrews sees it a little differently. Instead of being a point of despair and hopelessness, this writer finds it inspiring and motivating. Isn't that interesting? See what he writes in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, In light of this, because of all this, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all of these people who have gone before, these these wonderful women, women and men of faith, Because of that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So what's going on here? If God promised these things to all these people, and then they never lived long enough to receive the fulfillment of what was promised to them, how is that supposed to be an encouragement to me at the bottom of life's pit? And how can that be an encouragement to you? And I would say that it's the Jesus lesson. Now, for most of us, whenever something goes wrong in our lives, our first reaction is to say, God, how could you let this happen to me? I thought you loved me. And sometimes we'll get so angry and resentful about what God allows into our lives that we end up turning our backs on him altogether. 
I've seen people make that decision more times than I care to count. But in fact, we don't have to react that way. There's a choice. We have a choice about how we're going to react. We don't have to run away from God. We can run to God. Essentially, it's the choice whether or not to trust. To trust God, to believe his promises, even when the circumstances of your life don't make sense to you. To accept that as our father, there are things that God understands, that he sees that we don't. It's the choice not to give up on faith. And the reason that that I think that's the right choice is because I believe that life with God in hard times is far better than life without God any time. That life with God in hard times is better than life without God any time. See, I believe that your satisfaction in life and your joy are a result of what you believe at the core of who you are. They're not a result of what happens to you. A lot of times we base our happiness on the circumstances of our lives. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Things are going really well. I'm really happy about all that, all the great things that are going on in my life. Well, that's great. That's good for you. I hope it continues that way. So often we root our, our contentment in life with the circumstances that are happening around us. But I would say that actually it's about how we engage with our circumstances and how we look at our circumstances, how we understand our circumstances, which are based on what we really believe to be true at the gut level of who we are. So these people in Hebrews 11, they're held up as models for us to imitate. Because each of them were living by faith when they died. Their circumstances weren't great, but their belief and trust in God were great. And that's what made their lives great. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that their lives are inspiring. Their lives are motivating. The fact that they did it should be an encouragement for us to do it when we're at the bottom of life's pit. And we all wind up there sooner or later, don't we? But, but where does this faith come from? Right? Is it, is it something that we just manufacture? Something that we can just muster up from, from within ourselves? If we try very hard to believe, does it just happen? Is it a matter of ignoring whatever doubts or questions or issues we might have? Turning a blind eye to the struggles that we're having? And trying to understand God, pretending that there are no problems, no struggles, no doubts. We just shut our eyes and shut our ears. I can tell you, I've seen people try to do this, to try to to manufacture and generate faith this way. And it doesn't work. In fact, it, it never works. Because what happens is that at some point, the whole house of cards comes crashing down. Finally, you reach a situation in your life where that no amount of denial, no amount of pretending, no amount of loud protesting is going to overcome the fact that you're really having a problem understanding who God is and how this all works. And where is he, by the way, in the middle of this mess? 
And the outcome is that you've usually spent so much energy trying to, to plug all the holes in your dike that the pressure simply becomes too great and the whole thing gives way. You get overwhelmed and your faith gets destroyed and washed away in the process. But instead of a faith that's built around denial and pretending, the author of Hebrews gives us a different foundation. And, and I just want to say here that, that there is a foundation for faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and being certain about what we don't see, yet that doesn't mean that it's just blind faith, like some people characterize it. It's not faith without reason. There are things that point us to faith that show us that there are things beyond ourselves that we can't see and yet we can know are real. And foremost among those things that point us to God, foremost among them is the life of Jesus. So the author of Hebrews says, let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, of course, the Bible was not originally written in English. It was uh, in the New Testament. It was, was composed in Greek. And what we have is a translation from Greek into English. And in the Greek, it says, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, that word that's used there is the Greek word aphorao. And it, it means, it carries the idea not just of, of looking at Jesus, but looking to him for the purpose of gaining wisdom or understanding or insight. It's like when you study something, when you look deeply into it, when you take something and you examine it and you pour over it, you're not just looking at it, you're, you're studying it. You're trying to discern what it is about this, this subject that you're studying so that you can gain wisdom and insight that comes from it. It's that kind of looking that that the writer is talking about. So, so we fix our eyes, we study Jesus intently for the purpose of gaining wisdom or insight. It's like when we say in English, when we say, oh, I see, I see. It's not so much a visual kind of seeing with our eyes as it is gaining an insight, having an aha moment. See, faith is being certain about what we don't see physically, but we can look at the life of Jesus. We can see him and he will point us to what we don't see and give us reason to first understand and then believe. So the writer of Hebrews is essentially saying, if you want to understand how this works, if you want to see it, if you want to know what faith is, where it comes from and how we have it, then all you have to do is look to Jesus. He's the author of faith, and he's the perfecter of faith. He's the starting point, and he's the ending point. If you want to understand what faith is and how to get it and how it works, then just look at Jesus. Well, why is that? What did Jesus do? Verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, the first thing to see here is that there is a reason that Jesus went to the cross. And it's not because he just enjoys torture so much that he couldn't help himself. The Christian life is not about finding joy in pain. It's about having joy in spite of pain. 
Now, there's a reason Jesus submitted to the cross. It was the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was it about going to the cross that gave Jesus joy? The writer of Hebrews doesn't tell us outright. He kind of expects us to know the answer. But in case you don't know the answer, then I'll tell you. The joy that motivated Jesus' entire life was doing the will of the Father, was carrying out the will of the Father, being obedient to what the Father had instructed him and given him. See, in John chapter 4, Jesus tells his disciples, my food, the thing that sustains me, that gives me energy, that nourishes the deepest part of me, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 17, just before he was crucified, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. That's how Jesus glorifies his Father, by finishing the work that his Father gave him to do. Now, this is the one deep, great, sustaining joy of Jesus' life, to honor his Father by obeying him. And that joy is so intense that nothing can make him quit or turn aside because there's nothing that he loves more. The joy that Jesus found in obeying his father was so rich that he was willing to endure all manner of suffering to obtain it, even being whipped and mocked and humiliated and spat on and nailed to a cross with a crown of thorns digging into his head and bearing every sin of every person in the entire world Onto himself he bled and died to honor the Father through his obedience. So consider him, verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Consider Jesus. Take a long, hard look at him. So that you can get an understanding of how this faith thing works. Fix your eyes on him so that you can see, so that you can get it, so that you can have your aha moment. Because, see, if he was the son of God, if he was perfect, if he is our model, the one that we pattern our lives after, if following Jesus means putting our hope and trust in what he accomplished for us on the cross and following after his footsteps, then how can we expect to escape hard times? See, following Jesus means following following him all the way to the cross. If God's love rested on him in such a way that he called out loud from heaven, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. But yet Jesus still had to go to the cross. Then how can we think that our suffering is somehow an indication that God doesn't love us? See, those are false beliefs. And they erect a false faith that is the result of not having really looked at Jesus. It's the kind of faith that we create when we've only looked at ourselves and what we want to get out of life. Because we want to avoid a life of pain. Right? We want to avoid a life of suffering. We want to avoid trials and problems, and we want everything to go well for us. So when we believe that that's what God is offering us, we're living out a faith that only comes from looking at ourselves and what we want. 
But the author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And what we see when we look at his life is something completely different. Because in the end, the kind of faith that comes from looking at ourselves can't stand up under the storms of life. Because the storms come. They always come. So the Jesus lesson is this. If you make God the center of your life, your life will be unshakable. This is what we learn when we fix our eyes on Jesus. If you make God the center of your life, then your life will be unshakable. But it's only if you make him the center. See, if anything else is the focus of your life, if anything else is at the center of your life, any person, any job, a cause, possessions, any status you might have or hurt or resentment or pain, a desire for revenge from the past, bitterness, if anything else is the focus of your life, it will not be able to bear the weight of your soul. And it will collapse underneath you. It will fail. It will disappoint because everything in this world fails. Eventually, everything in this world fails. But God never fails. Now, this is something that I've taught for a long time, long before Tanya died. I've encouraged people not to give up on their faith when they're struggling. When they were going through things that I could not even possibly imagine. Places I had never been to. I said, don't give up on God. Don't run away from God. Run to God. But that counsel that I gave to people was something that that I believed on faith. Because that's what the Bible says. I found other things in my life to be true that, that the Bible says. So I believe that this was true too. But I can teach this now in a completely different way. I can teach it with absolute certainty. A certainty born out of my own experience. If you make God the center of your life, your life will be unshakable. He will sustain you through any trials. God has provided me now with another wonderful wife, an incredible mother, for my boys. He has been so gracious and so incredible, but you'll hear more about that part of my story a different week. But I can tell you that walking through this dark valley, walking through these dark times, I had no idea if there was ever going to be anybody else. I didn't know what God had in store for me. I thought I need to be ready and I need to be prepared to do this by myself the rest of my life. And that was a scary, difficult place to be. And yet I found God's grace and God's strength guiding me through that whole process. And then he miraculously provided me with a wife who is so amazing and so incredible. But you know, back then, when Tanya died... I hurt in ways that I didn't even know I could hurt. It was utterly gut-wrenching. Just like Jesus certainly felt the pain of the cross. Just because he had joy in obeying his Father didn't mean that he wasn't suffering. 
he suffered tremendously for us. But in my great pain, God gave me a greater capacity to bear the pain as I kept him at the center. Instead of focusing on my pain, I focused on him. Now, it would have been easy for me to make Tanya the center of my life because she was amazing. She was a tremendous woman. But if I had done that, it might have worked for a while, but where would I have been when she died? My whole world would have been destroyed. And then after she died, it would have been easy for me to make my kids the center of my life. They, they certainly needed a lot of special attention and extra love. But they aren't strong enough to support all my hopes and fears and needs. They can't endure that kind of pressure. It would have ruined them and me. So before, during, and after Tanya's death, I've chosen to center my life around the only one who will never leave, who will never fail, who is the foundation of this world, who rules over even life and death. I will hide myself in the one that I can never lose, and then I will never be lost. I will anchor myself in the one that can never be shaken, and then I will be unshakable. See, faith is being sure of what we hope for and being certain about what we do not see. I do not yet see heaven. I don't see God's triumph over evil. In fact, evil seems to get stronger and stronger all the time. In fact, I don't see God at all. But I'm certain that he's there. Because the life of Jesus doesn't make any sense without God the Father leading, guiding, and sustaining him. I'm certain that he loves me. I'm certain that life with him in hard times is better than life without him any time. Now, what you truly believe is conveyed through your actions. Not what you say you believe or what you want people to think you believe, but what you actually believe determines what you do, particularly when a storm comes your way. My boat is anchored on the rock of Jesus. And I can't be moved no matter how hard the wind blows. What are you anchored on? What is the anchor for your soul? I want to invite the praise team to come back up. We're going to be um, sharing with you a song that I wrote as I was going through these times in my life. You know, in, in learning the Jesus lesson, I spent a lot of time looking at and reflecting on the cross. There's a reason that the cross is at the center of our faith. And I saw that there are at least three things in our faith that, that the cross is totally central for. There are three things that, that the cross is all about. At the very least, three things. And one, first and foremost, is, is defeating sin. The cross is there to defeat sin. Because on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sin so that we could stand forgiven, clean and pure before a holy God. And the cross is about dying to self. And saying, okay, I have totally 
screwed up my life, doing things my way. And I see how it doesn't work. And so I am not the one calling the shots anymore. It's, it's you, Lord. So the cross is about defeating sin. It's about dying to self. And it's about receiving new life through Jesus Christ. A life that we couldn't receive any other way. So these three things, defeating sin, dying to self, and new life in Christ, that's what the cross is all about. That's what the cross is for. And you'll see those three things reflected in the three verses of this song. And I want to invite you to reflect on that and to think about that. As You can be seated. So... You might be here thinking, okay, Scott, nice story. Hebrews 12, you wrote a song. What am I supposed to do with this? And ultimately, that's, that's really between you and God. We're all in different places. But here are some ideas. Maybe you're here and, and you don't have faith in God. Maybe somebody invited you to come or you wandered in off the street. I want to encourage you to understand that what we're talking about here is not religion. It's a relationship. It's about walking through life with God. And I would love to talk with you if you've got questions after the service. I'll be down here in front. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, to, to come back for the rest of the series because we'll be talking about this more and more and more as we go on and I'm able to share more of my story and more of the lessons that God has taught me. I really want to encourage you to, to come and to hear and to really consider about what a life with God looks like. Maybe that's not you. Maybe, maybe you're here and, and you are a Christian. You know God. You've put your faith in Him, but you're struggling. Let me encourage you to stop pretending that you don't have any doubts, that you don't have any struggles, that you don't have any questions. If your faith is weak, it doesn't pretend, it doesn't do any good to pretend that it's strong. So let me encourage you to talk to the pastors who are here on staff. Talk with the elders who are here in this church. Talk with your community group leaders. Talk with me. I guarantee there are people who can help you walk through this. Don't do it alone. We weren't meant to do life alone. We were meant to encourage and support and help each other through this because it's hard. It's not easy. It's hard. Maybe your step is to throw off the sin that's entangling you. If you know that you've got sin that's, that's in your life, that's going to get between you and God. The overriding joy of Jesus' life was doing the will of his Father. And if we're going to follow Jesus, that means that, that our lives more and more and more as we go on with him are going to resemble him. So maybe your step this morning is to throw off the sin that's entangling you. To make that decision. To stop loving your sin and hanging on to your sin and nurturing and stroking your sin. But to start hating your sin. Because you understand the damage that it's doing in your life and the lives of the people around you. 
maybe your step is to study the sufferings of Jesus, to fix your eyes on him, maybe even for the first time, to study his life, to really understand that, that his entire life was suffering from the moment he was born until he, he was crucified. And he did it all for you and for me to rescue us from sin for the glory of God the Father. Maybe your step is to draw closer to the Father through consistent worship and prayer and reflection on Scripture. Because the more that you make God the center of your life, the more your life will be unshakable. I don't know what your step is. But I do believe that God is speaking to your heart. And I want to encourage you to listen to Him. Don't run away from Him. Father God, you are amazing and incredible, and the promises of your word are so true, so true. And God, my road has been hard and it has been difficult, but I'm so grateful for the things that you have taught me and shown me about yourself and how you have carried me along and sustained me and led me through. And I know, Lord, that you can do and are willing to do, are ready to do the same for anybody here if we only run to you and not away from you. So, God, I pray that we would hear your voice and respond to you because we know that today, today is the day to answer your call and not to put it off. So, God, I pray that we would leave this place this morning full of your strength and power and wisdom and mercy and love, that we would incorporate you into the very center and core of our lives, that we would become a people who are unshakable because of the God that we are anchored in who cannot be shaken. We pray it all, Lord, to your glory and your honor through Christ our Lord. Amen.